0: to correct the errors of the lower councils. We will reserve the balance of our time for Dr. Nagley to discuss how we as a church can live in to being obedient to God's commands in the area of sexual uh, human sexuality. Let me start by reminding us where we are in this process. Recall that this commission remanded the case to the synod because it failed in two respects. First, to consider whether the scriptures and the confessions prohibit the sexual conduct embraced in the candidate's statement of departure. And second, to determine, in light of scriptural and confessional mandates, whether the Presbytery's decision was constitutional. There are two inferences from remand itself, which we, if correct, we applaud. First, it is apparent that this commission believes that scripture matters that the Synod needed to consider whether Scripture guided the Presbytery in reaching its decision. It's good to know that this Commission then still believes that Scripture remains the only rule of faith and manners. Second, it appears it is proper for a reviewing council to ensure that lower councils comply with scriptural mandates. Or if it is proper for the Synod to assure that a presbytery did not err in that regard, then by extension it must be the case that it is proper for this commission to correct the synod if it errs. And if we are incorrect in making these two inferences, we ask that you will tell the church plainly. So, did the synod do it as it was asked? (coughs) Kinda sorta, not quite. In response, the synod again, focused on its process and not on the erroneous, biblical, and doctrinal content of the candidate's departure state. Nor did the Synod seriously consider whether Scripture and the Confessions provide guidance. Indeed, the Synod, in essence, threw up its hands and said that the mandate of Scripture and Confessions cannot be known because, and I quote, there is such a vast diversity of interpretation in the meaning of Scripture and the Confessions on the issue of human sexuality. Is this true? Is there a, a vast diversity of opinion? No, not really. There's only two views. There is the traditional view, and then there is the view that rejects the traditional view. The traditional view, of course, states that scripture univocally presumes a male-female prerequisite for sexual conduct, and even then only in the context of marriage, and that everywhere in scripture homosexuality is disapproved. This view is the official position of the church, and we know this because it is what is expressed in our professions, which are our interpretation of scripture. And as the record in this case demonstrates through the testimony of Dr. Thompson and Dr. Gagnon, the traditional view was not reached by happenstance or or frivolity, but rather through centuries of deliberation, conversation, studied discussion, and prayerful deliberation. And then the church decided. And then it enshrined that decision in the Confessions. So how do we process the contemporary view that rejects the traditional view, that views it as being wrong? Well, let me note first that the existence of a contrary view, or even contrary views to that traditional view, the Church's classic teaching on this matter, does not take away the authority and the binding nature of the traditional view. The whole point of the Confessions is to reflect the decision of the body to which which interpretation of Scripture is the correct one. So the good news, commissioners, for you, is you do not have to decide among one among many views, but only to adopt, reaffirm, and be guided by the view that the confessions already teach. You need not be concerned that you are imposing new doctrine on the church. You need only help the church live into what the church has already imposed upon itself. Indeed, to permit the Synod's decision and the Presbytery's act to stand would permit these councils to impose a new standard on the church—a a standard of indecision, even—and and, and by the way, going about it in the most unpresbyterian fashion, a process that perpetuates indecision, call it a diversity of views, yields the argument to the loudest voice. Now, the remedy for those who disagree with the traditional view is not by encouraging non-compliance, not by rewarding a rogue action by presbyteries or governing bodies, but through constitutional process to revise the confessions through conversation, <clears throat> discussion, prayerful debate, and vote. Now, the Church took this very approach when it replaced G6106B with Amendment 10A in the form of government. But in doing so, it did not change the scriptural and confessional mandate that G6 had summarized. So we come back to the question: why is this the role of this commission? To correct the doctrinal errors of lower councils, or stated differently, why is this a constitutional question? If the constitution were silent on the issue of scripture's authority and applicability, or silent on the issue of sexuality, then the synod's deference to the presbytery would be proper, and presbyteries would have to figure things out for themselves. However, the present issue is in fact addressed directly both in the Confessions and in the form of government. So in other words, in the Constitution, which is binding on all Presbyterians. These two these include two specific declarations, one I've already mentioned, that scripture is the only rule of faith and practice, one of the historic principles of church order. And in the Confessions, those sections that define marriage as between a man and a woman, and prohibit sexual conduct outside of marriage. This is in our Constitution. And since the Synod failed to apply and adhere to both these declarations, it falls to this commission to correct the errors of the lower councils. Now, we agree with Mr. Nave, who has often said, this commission does not sit as a council of bishops. As theologians imposing doctrines on the church, And you yourselves, in your prior decision, have declared you are not theologians. But in this regard, this commends you for this task. Because in this task, theologians are not what are called for. Indeed, the theological work has already been done by theologians over the millennia. The church's position on this matter is established. Your job... Commissioners is to enforce what the church has agreed is its standard. Yes, the church reformed it is always in need of reforming. Not to some new invented doctrine, but back to God's unchangeable truth. That is, conforming to the original form which has become deformed. This commission is charged with ensuring conformity with the form the church has agreed to Our desire for this panel is that its decision will boldly declare that scripture still has authority to bind, that homosexual practice is not God's desire for his people, and that ordaining a committed homosexual person violates this teaching and must be overturned. Our desire is that those who agree with us, like those who wrote the dissent, in this original synod decision and order, would make their affirmation of Scripture and the Confession a prominent and bold feature in the decision that this panel issues. And to do that as a gift to the Church, as an encouragement to those in the Church who just want to follow what Scripture teaches. Please, please don't create a procedural wrinkle to hide one. Declare boldly the church's position. Tell the church: Is it still sola scriptura? Is scripture still our only rule for faith and practice, or will it be nolo scriptura? For well, that is the choice: either scripture is clear enough to demand compliance, or it is not. Tell us: sola scriptura, or nolo scriptura.
1: I start my, my prepared remarks. I'm just struck. Yeah. Can you hear me? I'm struck. It doesn't seem to be on. Okay. I'm struck by this idea that what the church has ruled for millennia must guide us necessarily today. That means things like four members of this commission should step aside because women should not be ordained. The confessions say that. Of, our counsel, uh, two of the four councils should also leave the because women should not be ordained. The idea that the church can never change a position that has long been held by the, by the uh, church and the, the traditional Christian community simply isn't the reformed way of doing business. It's not the Presbyterian way. And the suggestion that's been made to you that you should go back to the old view just because it's an old view is radical in the Presbyterian. This commission asked the uh, SPJC to consider again whether scripture in the confessions prohibit certain sexual behavior. I believe the right reading of that decision was that when parties put something in issue, a commission has to address it, and the SPJC did not expressly do that. I think that's what she meant. They have now clearly done that. But the debate goes beyond that. The debate goes to, is acceptance of this scruple within the bounds of reformed interpretation for scripture and the confessions. And the SPJC said yes. They said the testimony showed, quote, a range of interpretations reached through thoughtful and prayerful discernment that is in itself evidence that the candidate's departure cannot be from an essential of reformed faith and polity. We have a range of views in the church, range a range of views that has been developed thoughtfully, prayerfully, deliberately, by scholars, by people in the pews. We do not have a consensus, but we do have a very, very deep difference of views among many people. This is not about the loudest voice or the lone dissenter. If this commission were to do what the complainants have asked you to do, you would be declaring that over half of the Presbyterian Church USA is apostate. I suggest that's not a position this commission to We do have a practice on how we interpret Scripture, and it's set forth in several policy papers. We cited it in our brief. Let me go through quickly what those are. We do two things. First, we, des- we try to decide what is the plain sense of Scripture, plain sense, and then we try to decide what is the right use of Scripture. This is in our Presbyterian guidelines. Well, when we look at the plain sense of Scripture, does that mean we just pick up any Bible and we read it and we say, that's what it says? No, it doesn't. Our guidelines say we first start and try to use the best text and the most reliable interpretation. Then, we read every sentence in its context as a literary unit. Try to decide what does this book or this chapter mean. We read it as a whole in context. Then we recognize that language comes out of a cultural milieu, that a word we may use today means something different than it meant some years ago, or decades, or centuries, or different cultures ago. We try to understand what the language really meant. And after we've done all of that, then we think about this statement and the fact that it was made in a particular historical social context. Several of the texts that are commonly cited against same-sex behavior arise from a time when slaves and young boys were used as sexual objects. That's something we would condemn. That's something that the, the scriptures clearly condemn. The question is whether that's all they condemn or something more. But in any event, however you resolve that question, we need to read the scripture in light of the historical social circumstances when it was written. All of those things are taken into account in determining what is the plain meaning of Scripture. We don't just cite a a sentence. And once we have gotten to what we believe is the plain sense of a Scripture, then we have to decide what is the right use of that Scripture. And our guidelines give us some answers to that again. What do we do? First, we use Scripture according to its real purpose. We recognize that it's not an authority for every question. It doesn't give scientific answers most of the time. It doesn't address a lot of the questions we have today. We have to recognize that it addresses some questions and it's authoritative on those, but we can't pretend that it addresses other things the writers didn't contemplate. Using it in accordance with the purpose for which it was written. Then. We read scripture with an awareness of other authorities. What are those? Church tradition and the confessions are one. Modern knowledge is another. So is personal experience. None of those trump scripture. But we bring them all to our reading of scripture to understand what scripture really means. So when we read scriptures about, for example, homosexual persons, we have to recognize that the time scripture was written... Heterosexual men were using slaves as homosexual play toys. We now know that there are a group of people in the world who have a natural, innate sexual orientation to members of their same sex. The people who wrote scripture didn't know that. So they were talking about something different. We read these texts with an awareness, with knowledge, with experience that the writers of those texts may not have And then we give Jesus Christ praise. We say all scripture is, and I'm quoting, all scripture is to be interpreted in light of the centrality of Christ and in relation to the salvation provided through him. We're not trying to create a persecutory text that oppresses people. We're trying to find the truth to salvation in Jesus Christ. And when we read scripture, we read with that awareness, desire, intention. Then, in deciding how to make the right use of scripture, we recognize that we interpret scripture with scripture. We don't really say we have a canon within a canon. That's something that's a popular scholarly idea. We've not really adopted that. But we do say that we interpret some texts of scripture in light of the greater themes of scripture as a whole. We use scripture to interpret scripture. Not picking out isolated texts. And then we apply the rule of love. Sounds kind of wishy-washy. But we take it seriously. We say, quote, no interpretation of scripture is correct. No interpretation of scripture is correct that leads to or supports contempt for any individual or group. Now, when we apply these two things, interpreting scripture with scripture and applying the rule of love, and we think about gay and lesbian people, there are some interesting things to remember. What's the great text, what's the great theme of scripture but reconciliation, the expanding grace of Jesus Christ, the inclusiveness of a loving, caring, reconciling, saving community. That is the theme of scripture, covenant. Those are the themes, And we think about things like the Gentiles. A lot of Jews in the New New Testament times thought that the Gentiles couldn't be part of the community of faith, or if they could, they had to be circumcised and comply with all of the old ritual laws. It's not what scripture teaches. We think about the Ethiopian eunuch, back from Deuteronomy, where anybody who was a eunuch could not even enter the temple. And the Ethiopian eunuch asks the apostle, what is to prevent me from being baptized? And he says, nothing. And baptizes him. It's an expanding world of grace and salvation. We think about the Samaritan woman whom Jesus met at the well, despised as an outcast, a sexual miscreant, Living with a man, not her husband, and Jesus named her the first missionary. When we think about the great themes of Scripture, reconciliation, salvation, evangelism, we recognize that the few texts that might, that might refer to same-sex relationships cannot be read narrowly in an exclusive fashion. That's my contention. Others might disagree. But in any event, it's a legitimate interpretive task that our guidelines and serious Christianity require of us. After we've, we've interpreted scripture and scripture applied the rule of love, we consider past and present understandings in the community of the church. We don't take individual readings. We look at the community. And indeed, that is what the SPJC did. They had testimony from all corners of the church. And each of those witnesses testified to conversations around the church. Now, the um, complainants, the appellants have said the confessions clearly condemn same-sex behavior. Well, frankly, that's not true. We've, we've discussed that in our briefs. I won't repeat that here. There's a debate about that, isn't there? But even ignoring the debate, it doesn't answer the question. I, I take it from the comments that we just heard that what we're supposed to do is revise the confessions now. We don't do that. The confessions are testimonies of their time. We now allow women to be ordained even though two confessions say that women should not perform the sacraments. We don't go back and change the old confessions. We're guided by the confessions. We take them as testimony, but not as rules. To ignore that is simply to misstate how we use the confessions. And our guidelines on the the interpretation of Scripture expressly note that, quote, the confessions understand, the confessions themselves understand full well that the Church's traditional interpretation of Scripture is fallible and is always subject to revision and correction. Reformed to the core. And that takes us to our last guideline on interpretation of Scripture, which is remembering that all interpretations are fallible and subject to change. Now that's our process. Where does it leave us? Well, it doesn't leave us with a very clear, univocal understanding of Scripture on some hotly contested issues. Granted, that's Presbyterianism. What we do have is a reformed awareness of the fallibility of the way we read Scripture, and we recognize that no matter how sincere we may hold our individual convictions, we need to show mutual forbearance to others who also believe in Jesus Christ and interpret Scripture differently. We have a duty to show each other mutual forbearance. Ladies and gentlemen, that's at the beginning of confessions in the book of Word. It's a duty. It's what makes us Presbyterian. It's what makes us Reformed. Over half of the church has now voted that we should not impose an interpretation of scripture that prohibits all same-sex relationships. Over half. To pretend that the church still holds the other view simply ignores what has happened. The Church has not said that same-sex relationships are always good. Some in the Church who might have voted to eliminate G60106b may even have felt that none of them are good. But what the Church has voted is that there's sincere, prayerful, deliberate difference on this, not that we owe each other mutual forbearance. We cannot impose a single interpretation. The Church has voted that. General Assembly majority voted for that. 57% of the Presbyteries voted for that. It is not proper to impose a single interpretation on this issue. <coughs> that interpretation. Well, did the whole church get it right? Was over half the church wrong on this? And should this commission act as a college of bishops and overturn over half the church? I suggest that's not Presbyterian at all. But let's think it through. What makes gays and lesbians different from some of the other things we've changed our minds about? Is it the historic church-wide consensus? Is that why we can't change our mind? Then we shouldn't be ordaining women. In fact, the pope just last year declared that ordaining women or preaching that women should be ordained is, is tantamount in gravity of sinfulness to child abuse put them on the same level. So to pretend that differences among churches or the historical church position limits what we do in the Presbyterian church simply isn't true. What else? Is it the vehemence of past denunciations? If we said it strongly enough in the past, does that mean we can't change? Well, I like this one. We changed the Westminster Confession in 1903 to take out a text that called the Pope that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and in all all that is called God. We took that out. Vehemence of denunciation doesn't alone give us a rule that can never be changed. We've also, by the way, backed away from the, the idea that we adopted in 1845 that declared that Roman Catholic baptism isn't Christian. And we stopped an imposition of something in 1840 that every year General Assembly had to hear a sermon on the evils of the papacy. Well, is it inherent deficiency that disqualifies gay and people? Is there something inherently so bad about them, so different about them, they can't be pastors? Well, that hasn't been the position of this church, ever. We have always said that orientation is not the bar. Even when we were excluding people, we, didn't say, we said it was not orientation, it was practice. But if we think there's something inherently deficient, thank you. The church has always believed that about women, too. And we've changed our mind. Now, I hate to keep harping on women, but it's just such an an obvious analogy to where we are now as a church. We are in a small minority of the church worldwide, in ordaining women. But we firmly believe that's the right thing to do. The fact that the church for centuries has felt something different, and most of the church still does has not shaken our conviction on that fundamental principle. Do we believe it's the choice of a practice that disqualifies gay and lesbian people? Is it the fact that they choose not to be celibate? Well, we changed our minds about divorce and remarriage. Those are practices. The fact that it's a chosen practice doesn't mean we can't change our Do we, do gays and lesbians somehow become more serious and different because we're concerned about schism? That if we open the church to gay and lesbian ministers, we'll lose some of our membership. What well, we did, when we ordained women, that's where the Presbyterian Church of America came from. A schism over women's ordination. I don't think we think we made the bad decision. We were sorry they went. The people who simply can't abide... What the church's discernment is, they may feel compelled to be, but that's not a reason to deny the leading of the Holy Spirit as more than half of this church perceives it. What's left? What's left? Why are gays and lesbians different? Is it simply because this is a group of people that makes some other people uncomfortable? If that's what it is, let's call it what it is. It's prejudice. And this church has a ministry of reconciliation. It's not a haven for prejudice. So, where are we? I'm not going to use my full half hour. I'd be happy to respond to questions. I hope you've read the brief. I'd like to just take a moment, a personal moment, I guess, just in closing. I was in Jerusalem last November with my partner. And we went to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. I don't know if any of you know I frankly didn't. It's a wreck of a building, practically falling down. But is the church in the center of Jerusalem built over the site where we believe Christ was crucified and buried? Why is it a problem? Why is it falling down? It's falling down because the church of Jesus Christ can't stay together. They're fighting each other. Part of the church is under the control of the Greek Orthodox. Part of the church is under the control of the Roman Catholics. Part of the church is under the control of the Armenian Orthodox. Part of the church is under the control of the Syrian Orthodox. Part of the church is under the control of the Egyptian Copts, and part of it is under the control of the Ethiopians. They got the roof. The sepulcher built over Christ's tomb has a big iron scaffolding holding it up so it won't fall down. Put up in 1845 because nobody can figure out how to fix it without changing the tenuous balance of power in this building. If you go in the front door, there's a ladder hanging out of a window right over the front portico. That ladder, I'm told, is where there was a Christian community that wasn't allowed on the ground floor, so they went out on the ladder to get fresh air. And when the status quo agreement of 1870 was imposed by Muslims to stop the fighting in the church, the ladder was there. So it's still there. They repair it, but they can't move it. And what's most interesting is the Ethiopians. They're on the roof. They live there. They can't leave. They can't go inside the church and have services. They're up there on the roof. But they stay there to keep their plan. And in 2002, one of the the guys who was sitting in his chair on the roof in the sunlight said, gee, it's hot. I'd like to move my chair into the shade. That led to a fight with 11 people hospitalized between these religious communities. I don't know if you're relieved or mortified to know the Protestants can't have any services in there at all. Is that what the Church of Jesus Christ is? It's a, it's a mortifying thing, that, that church. And it reminds me of that old saying, the tragedy of the church is so fast on the heels of Christ come the Christians. We can do better. Lisa has been sitting on the roof for 20 years. It's time to let her in.
2: Moderator and commissioners, uh, a couple of comments. Uh- because the interpretation of scripture is one of my uh, important topics just in life and what I do teaching in seminary, etc. Uh, but the, in, in outlining the method for interpretation of scripture, I don't have too many quibbles with Mr. Nave, except to say that by focusing on major themes of the scripture, he said we are not to pick out isolated texts. We cannot, as a church and as the people of God, only fly at 35,000 feet and never ground what we do and believe on uh, individual texts. It is, in fact, the text of Scripture that is what God has given us. Having said that, we do have a major theme, which governs the position that we are sharing with you today, and that is God's joyful affirmation of male-female complementarity and male-female prerequisite for sexual conduct, sexual relationships. Uh, And so uh, we affirm both the major theme, but it is grounded in specific texts, which do very carefully and uh, specifically give us teaching in this matter. Further, as Dr. Gagnon um, illustrated in Trial, and so in his uh, portion of the testimony. It is a false analogy to link this particular subject with the ordination of women. The interpretive process one goes through gets you to different places in the scripture. The movement is toward... There are always themes, always moments throughout the biblical narrative where women are affirmed and lifted up in the Gospels, in the Old Testament, New Testament, and there's this trajectory towards uh, women... uh, as preachers and women as prophets in the New Testament. I've, I've written papers on that. That was a hurdle I had to get over before I actually uh, came under care of my presbytery. Uh, so so that is not a, a good biblical exegesis example, nor is it for our uh, purposes here today, because as he said, what changed that was uh, it, it, an action of the church consciously to make that choice and to record that, in subsequent uh, 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 different uh, confessions, and further, uh, he illustrated that with that uh, inflammatory anti-Papist language in the Westminster Confession, that that in fact was deleted by an act of the Church after deliberation. So it is possible, and that's how you would do it. When a person has been in this process for over four years, as we have, it's worth asking the question, answering the question, why does this mean so much? I know the outcome of the commission's deliberations will matter to the candidate who has waited long enough for a definitive answer and to San Francisco Presbytery which desires to be affirmed in a position it has held for some time. But why does it matter to me as a teaching elder and theological educator? Why does it matter to the people I pastor and mentor in the faith or the people I imagine sitting in the back pew of the typical church? What impact does this discussion and this commission's decision have on my best friend and her gay son whom I have known and welcomed for years? Or on those people whose struggle to live in sexual purity has been painfully difficult? How will the decision we hope for make things better for the Presbyterian Church? A declaration that Scripture, as our only rule of faith and practice, prohibits homosexual behavior by church officers and actually all people of faith puts God at the center of the discussion. God, whose word is the Scripture, has given us his mind and will on this matter. God has not obfuscated or nuanced or otherwise played hard to get with his revelation. If I were to put the sixth or so specific scriptures before you right now, you would easily recognize on the face of it in their plain sense that all without exception or equivocation say no to homosexual practice. Even theological scholars who promote gay ordination admit that the scriptures themselves all say no. That is its plain sense. If you were to put those same six scriptures before the back pew of your congregations, they too would recognize that the Bible says homosexual practice is forbidden by God and not worth the spiritual risk God attaches to it. If a lesbian couple were to ask me, what does God or the Bible say about homosexuality, this is what I would tell them, and I have. Here's what the Bible says. Let's pick one, 1 Corinthians 6-9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. I would remind them, this pretty much sums up what God thinks about all sorts of prevailing sins all of which, on the face of them, disqualify anyone from inheriting the kingdom of God. It is the loving thing to tell them, since they asked, that if they are interested in having life in Christ and enjoying the benefits of citizenship in God's kingdom, these are activities or lifestyle commitments to be avoided. And yes, homosexual practice is one of them. And so is my particular sin. We all have something in common, a sinful nature that drags us down into some sort of addiction, compulsion, or spiritual black hole. Having said that, this is not God's last word on the subject in that passage. As Paul goes on, and this is what, it, what some of you used to be, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And he goes on to say that they, for, they put aside that kind of lifestyle, whatever one it was for the sake of Christ. What God offers to any sinner enslaved by wrongdoing is God's liberating salvation and transformation if we want it. We are not liberated to perpetuate our sin. We are liberated to no longer need our sin and to need and rely on God more. God is at the center of this dynamic. God is the one around whom we can all find forgiveness of our sin and the spiritual power to walk out of the habits and practices that have had a hold on us. God is the one who keeps before us the vision of a holy and sanctified life and empowers us to walk in it. God gives us the content of our preaching and teaching as we encourage our church members to pursue godliness in all aspects of life. I'm homing in on this point of God at the center because the alternative is what mixes us up in this discussion. When we place ourselves at the center of the universe, our needs, our desires, our perspective, our wisdom, our experience, our rights, that is when confusion and disunity set in. When we're all after our own way, believing God's way to be... What? Unattainable? Unrealistic? Unknowable? Nothing good can come from a self-centered life. Good comes out of a repentant, God-centered life, because God promises this. And so to get back to my original question, why this matters to the Church, is that what we do here today, and the decision you make presumably tomorrow, will shape the teaching of the church for those people in the back pew, for our children, for my best friend and her son, for the lesbian couple. This commission and others who have authority within the PCUSA to render authoritative interpretations are in fact conducting the teaching office of the church for the benefit of Presbyterians. And the church needs its teachers to give clear and accurate information and to set standards that are consistent with the scripture when the word is clear as it is in this case. We are a people who embrace the reformation tenet of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Good discipline rightly administered in the church is the product of faithful and accountable discipleship that offers patient teaching of the scriptures and generous relational support through periods of transformation in response to the great commission of Jesus Christ, the church baptizes people, incorporates them into the household of the faith, and teaches them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. Christian discipleship requires all of us on a level field to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to do what he says in every aspect of life. If God were silent, On the topic of sexual holiness, we would not presume to fulfill to fill. I'm sorry. Let's start that again. If God were silent on the topic of sexual holiness, we would not presume to fill in the blanks. And we must not obscure God's truth in its plain sense either. The synod did not presume God's silence on the matter, but only pointed to confusion among Presbyterian scholars. If this confusion becomes the standard, if this no consensus becomes our definition, then no council could ever be held to account. But God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And the Peace USA, at its best, is not a church of chaos, but of order, ordered by word and spirit given for our benefit. If diversity of opinion is all it takes to obscure God's truth, such that we cannot make a ruling on this matter, then how can we be sure of anything? It is easy for human beings to become confused. This we know. But we also know this is not of God's doing, and this is not a sign that the Holy Spirit is still at work. Is it not the purpose of the confessions to clarify? This is why we have them to cut through our confusion, to establish a clear understanding of our faith and God's commands. If that is not their purpose, then why do we have them? Why have a constitution? Or the Bible for that matter? Why require seminary education of our clergy? It is all rendered irrelevant and meaningless. We have called this nolo scriptura, no scripture forms of basis. If confusion reigns, then teaching only makes the confusion worse. If the church speaks with many voices, then none can be heard as the true instructor of our faith. In that case, we have no standard to live by or to teach. We can hold no one accountable for anything, including lower councils. For lack of any standard, if councils are not accountable, then church officers are not accountable either. And then we have arrived at the same place the Israelites did at the time of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But these gifts to the church, the scriptures, the confessions, are not meaningless. They have power. They do shape our life together. If we will abide by them, if we will all abide by them as an act of mutual submission to the Lordship of Christ and a God-centered life. This is what we promised to do in our ordination vows. And so on behalf of the church, on behalf of those folks sitting in the back pew, on behalf of my friend's son, on behalf of the lesbian couple, on behalf of all who struggle against sin, including me, I ask you to embrace the truth by which we live and declare that scripture is our only rule of faith and practice and that its teaching is binding upon us all and declare that scripture says no to homosexual practice and declare that ordaining a committed homosexual person violates this teaching and must be overturned thank you very much for hearing our appeal today thank you I will turn the floor over to the case committee chair, Commissioner Butler. Thank you. Uh,
3: This is a question for the appellants. In my reading of the trial testimony of your experts, at least two seemed to say that even the texts which you argue are so clear are still open to some different interpretation, and based on your argument you might say confusion. I, I thought that Dr. Gagnon indicated that, and I want to quote this from page 330, that, that some of these texts are very much a matter of dispute. There simply isn't enough evidence one way or the other to resolve it, and John Thompson talked about the church is being asked to make a dogma out of something that I don't think we know, excuse me, that I don't think we yet know in terms of the rightness and wrongness of same-sex gender relations. I mean...
2: (coughs) Yeah, I can... Sorry. What do you do with that? Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, to Gagnon he also very strongly made the point that, that even though there are some texts where there's a lot of debate, that there are many also that given give the major theme through the narrative of scripture and the specifics enough to make it very clear that in any case in which homosexual uh, behavior is mentioned, it is proscribed. Um, and on the matter of what uh, Dr. Thompson said, after lunch, uh, I, when he said that, I kind of went, what are you saying? Uh, and uh, Rob Gagnon af- asked him during lunch what he meant by that, and entered into the record after lunch a clarification of that comment. Uh, uh, Dr. Thompson had to leave to go back to Fuller, uh, but what he was saying, we don't know because we have not acted as a whole body to declare our our intent, and so we being uh, th- we we need that because we don't have it yet, having been declared as an authoritative interpretation. I think that's what he that that's what he said to. What was uh, corrected by Rob after after lunch?
3: Are you saying then that we would know that we would know if what we voted is that how we would determine?
2: Yeah, if we if we I, I think that what um, and this was this was a trial. So this was a year and a half ago, right? Uh, and what he said was that the church has not what. The church has not made known. We we don't know because we have not established it through our process. Exactly what we mean, other than what we have in G six O one O six B, which is very clear. But in terms of um, the specific question that was coming up, you could read it to me again. Um, he said, "We we are we're still in process." But it wasn't that it can't be known. He wasn't saying it can't be known. He's saying we have to establish it formally through a formal constitutional. process. For it to be known.
3: Okay, now that gets me to, I guess, the next issue. And um, how do we, in our Reformed tradition, determine what are the essentials of our Reformed faith? And this is, I want to hear from both sides, but go ahead, Apollonis first.
2: State of the clerk of the denomination himself has declined to list any. So we, we know that there is this huge reticence to actually put pen to paper. And in fact, that is part of the problem.